Welcome to the Chicago Camp's 2017 Prototypes, Process, and Play Design Leadership Conference podcast, sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic mockups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast. Publish your podcast the easy way at simplecast.fm. This podcast features Scott Birkin, author and speaker, and his keynote, The Dance of the Possible, from August 10th, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Birkin. Thank you. Good morning. If you walk down the street a few blocks from where you're sitting right now, you will see a building that looks kind of like this. Does anyone know the name of this building? How many of you are locals, by the way, who probably have walked by this building a few times and did not even notice? Okay, I'm going to tell you a story about this building and about a bunch of other buildings, and then I'm going to tie it all the way around to user experience design and how ideas work and what you should learn from me in the half hour or so that I'm going to talk to you. So the name of this building is an unusual name. It's called the Monadnock Building. That's not a misspelling. It, it sounds sort of like something from Games of Thrones or something that like a uh, Sesame Street character. You have Snuffleupagus and the Monadnock or something. The name, the word, I thought for sure it had to come from a person, but it doesn't. It's actually an English word. And that word means an isolated hill or ridge on an erosion-resistant uh, erosion rock rising above a peneplain. Now, one of the odd things that happens when you start reading very specific words in other fields is you realize how irritating it is when people in a field insist on using more complicated language than is necessary. Peneplain basically just means, guess what? A plane. <laughs> it's a special kind of plane. But for me, trying to figure out what monadnock means, not that helpful. Sort of like calling yourself an enterprise information architect experience designer. Not all that helpful for most of the world, explaining what it is you do every day. But that's not the goal of my story, to hit you over the head with fancy vocabulary. Instead, I want to talk about the history of this building and tie it to another building that is far more well known. So this building was finished in 1891. And when it was finished, it was the tallest building in Chicago and probably in most of the East Coast. And when it was finished, it was designed with a certain model, a certain um, a paradigm of brick-based buildings. It was 16 stories high, which is very difficult to do when you're building with brick. Brick is good for certain things, but it's very heavy. And it doesn't deal with tension and other kinds of stresses very well. So you don't see many skyscrapers or buildings over a few feet high that are made out of brick. But they figured out a way to do it. They also had made it the first building in Chicago that had electric light. It was the first building in Chicago that had wind shear design elements in it to protect it from the wind, had fire systems. It's an amazing artifact of design history, and it's just a few blocks away. You can go inside the building and look around and read more about the building. But at the same time, this amazing building was being built. And in its day, it, was, it towered over all the buildings around it. So people would come. This is like a tourist attraction in Chicago. Around the same time, there was another group of people working on a different building. There were two young French engineers, Cochelin and Nuget, in the early 1880s, 1883, 1884, who had an idea for a different kind of building, a different kind of design. And they worked for a guy whose name you may know. His name is Eiffel. And they pitched him on this idea they had for a tower. And their early prototypes and sketches for the design looked like this. And this is actually literally, as you can tell, it's old paper. Their design looked something like this. And they, they knew the World's Fair was coming to Paris a few years down the road in 1889. They knew that Eiffel, who was an architect, he was not that famous, but he was famous enough to be the kind of person who could possibly put together a project at this scale. And they knew they worked for him. They wanted to pitch him on this idea. So they put it together. 
They knew this was bold. It would have been the tallest building in the world by a long amount, by a large amount. And they didn't want to overwhelm him with the scale of it, so they did something that designers do all the time. And this is sort of the first little lesson here. Whenever you're pitching an idea that's really big and radical and you're really, really ambitious, often it can fail because of its ambition. And you need to provide key little cues to people how to relate it to stuff they already know. So if you look in the bottom right-hand corner, they put in these little details of buildings that were already known. That's Notre Dame, and standing on top of Notre Dame is a Statue of Liberty, roughly drawn to scale, to give an idea of what it was they were proposing. Now, they brought this idea to Eiffel, and Eiffel was a businessman. He was an artist. He was an architect. And he was like, eh, it's kind of tall, but I'm not really into tall. And by the way, I'm paraphrasing here. This is not exactly what he said. This is not how they talked to each other then. I'm giving you a very Scott-oriented dialogue. So he's like, no, I don't, I don't really see it. Yeah, it's tall, but we don't want to just make a tall building. We want to make something that has some other characteristic, something emotive, something interesting artistically. So the two young engineers went back, literally, to the drawing board. And they started working again. And they realized there was another kind of talent they needed to have that they didn't possess. They reached out to another engineer, another architect, named Savastra, who was a little bit more experienced, but had a set of skills they did not possess. And they got him involved in the project. They pitched him to get him involved. He wasn't sure he wanted to do it at first. He got involved. They came with a new set of designs that looked a little bit more familiar. Now we're seeing some of the intricacies that the Eiffel Tower is known for. It's not just about the scale of the building. It's other artifacts. It's why it's such a popular thing today. So all three of them, these three relatively young engineers or designers, if I can use that word to apply to them, they then had to go back to Eiffel and pitch him again on this idea. It wasn't the first time, it wasn't the second time, it was probably the third or fourth time. They had to pitch him, pitch him. Finally, Eiffel said, fine. I like it. I see it. I see the vision of it now. Now, Eiffel had to go and pitch, basically, Paris. There was a committee put together to pick who's going to build the, the, the world's fair tower. And there were other entrants in that field. He had to convince them. And then, once they were convinced, they offered not enough money for the project. As often goes on in engineering, software development projects, you say, well, I need I need 10 weeks for this. OK, you have five. So he was told that he'd get half the amount of money that he asked for. And his response was, well, I will do that provided I can profit from the building. That I get ticket sales, I get rights to it. And uh, that's, a sh in a nutshell, how the Eiffel Tower project was born. And I tell you the story because usually when you're, you're told this story, if you're told bits of it, and not just for Eiffel, the Eiffel Tower or for the Monadnock building, any kind of great invention or created or designed thing in the world, you usually get an origin story that goes about that far, and then it skips to the end. Hey, we have the finished thing, and it's amazing. But I'm not going to skip to the end. I'm going to tell you what happened right after that. So as soon as they had the proposal together, the plans together, and they started building it, everyone in Paris, the elites in Paris, the poets, the architects, the writers, the musicians, all the elite class, the equivalent of the blogosphere or the, or the Twittersphere in 1885, 1887, got together and decided collectively in mass that they hated the idea of the Eiffel Tower. They thought it was disgusting. This is some of what they wrote. 300 of the elites at the time, 300 of them, and we know all the sub-factions in the design world or whatever field you're in, you know all the sub-factions of people who basically have similar views but are slightly different and they hate each other because they're so close? The information architects versus the user experience designers, the endless battles just about tiny bits of semantics. Even though they had all those, the same kind of political infighting, 300 of them got together to write a document. This is part of what it said. We writers, painters, sculptors, architects protest with all of our strength, with all of our indignation in the name of slighted French taste, 
against the erection of this useless and monstrous Eiffel Tower. This truly tragic street lamp, this massive iron gymnasium apparatus, incomplete, confused, and deformed. This is pretty brutal stuff. I mean, I've been in some tough like product reviews with executives or design briefings where no one in the room likes what I said or likes what, likes what the team put together. But I've never had 300 of my peers get together and write an essay and publish it in basically every newspaper telling me to stop something I had just started working on. But that's where the Eiffel Tower came from. And you, if you go back and look at the artifacts, there's some great photography of the construction of the building. If you imagine what it looked like if you didn't really if you were in the day, when nothing had been built this big before. And like I'm referencing the, the Monadnock building, because brick building was how most built brick or stone was how much of the history of buildings had ever been made. So this, to those eyes, is kind of monstrous. It does look kind of like a hulking mass. It doesn't have its complete aesthetics yet, because it's not finished. We know the Eiffel Tower today. It's the most well-known building in France. It's beloved by the French people now. They love it. It's basically their icon. Yet, we take it for granted all of the challenges that the ideas behind the building had to face, and how often they had to be defended in different contexts and different ways for it to reach the point where it could be finished. Even once it was finished, the plan was to tear it down. There's a whole other side story about how it was defended and eventually became, became a landmark. So I'm going to use this Eiffel Tower story as a way to illustrate some other general ideas about working with ideas. And as designers or writers or researchers, whatever the work is that you do, the central element of it is working with ideas. And often you're working pe with people who don't have the same background or savvy or experience at working with ideas. And part of what you are doing is doing some of the stuff that Eiffel had to do in managing people's perceptions of ideas and trying to convince them and persuade them and trying to get better at developing your own ideas or working with teams of people in meetings and in discussions to help them get their best ideas out. So as Russ mentioned, my name is Scott Birkin. Uh, this book is called The Dance of the Possible. I'll explain what that title means in a second. If you're tweeting or anything, my handle's at Birkin, and I'll post all the slides as soon to Twitter as soon as I am done. Now, before I continue, I have a question for you folks. So how many of you, this is, I know this is like a, maybe a false dichotomy, but how many of you are designers versus researchers? Raise your hand if you're a designer. OK. Raise your hand if you are a researcher. OK. Raise your hand if you are author. OK. We have any accountants in here? Any film producers? Jugglers? Governors? Senators? No? OK, so mostly designers, good. So the first lesson that comes out of the Eiffel Tower story, and is central to all of the studies from psychology into people who seem to be naturally good at developing ideas, what is it that's going on in their minds? What is the process that's actually going on in their brains? The, the simplest way to define it and describe it is this little mantra. All ideas are made of other ideas. And I want you to say it, say it with me. Okay, so one, two, three. Very good, very good. You sound just like a cult, which is perfect. Perfect to start a two-day two-day event all about design and thinking about process and prototyping. So Eiffel, I mentioned that when the two young engineers pitched him on the idea originally, he was like, eh, I don't, I don't, I'm not really that jazzed by it. He wasn't that jazzed by it because he knew a lot of the history of other buildings that had been built like it. 
This is the Ladding Observatory, which was built in New York State at a World's Fair about 10 or 20 years before the Paris World's Fair. There were a lot, it was sort of like, became like a meme, like a, a cliche thing that every World's Fair would have, a building that's really tall. And uh, he was aware of this, and he was like, that's not sufficient. And this is um, an interesting phrase that he used in reference, his critique of the Ladding Observatory. Eiffel said, it was built, with, with, built without regard for form and specifically commercial in purpose. Eiffel, I should have mentioned, Eiffel was an entrepreneur that he built buildings to make money from them. But at the same time, he had a sensibility about the aesthetics of things that are made. And he shares, we're in that tradition, and that designers in the software world uphold the same crossover of wanting to engineer and build things. You, you get paid a salary, your clients pay you, you know it's for profit. But at the same time, we're trying to uphold some kind of higher standard. We use the word empathy a lot now, often sloppily and often in an empty fashion. But we use the word empathy as a call to some kind of morality, some kind of higher standard we're trying to elevate the world to, or at least the world of the people who are going to pay to use the product. So there's a long history of the idea of these tall buildings being around for a while. I live in Seattle. The building that's most well known in Seattle is the Space Needle. What is the Space Needle riff on? The same idea. Do people who come to Seattle and say, I gotta go see the Space Needle, are they thinking that the idea of the Space Needle is made out of ideas that have been used and reused and recycled before? Of course not. But if you're thinking like a designer, if you're thinking like you wanna make the building that will be the next World's Fair, you have to become a student of the ideas that comprise the things and products and constructions that inspire you or that you think are successful that you wanna emulate. And the secret that lurks in here is that every product, every idea, every book, every movie, every film is comprised of pieces. And if you're able to take it apart and see those pieces, you now provide yourself the opportunity to use those pieces in a different way. And to combine them in a way where you discover, oh, what if I add this thing, or I remove this thing, or I twist it this way? And that is the basis, the combinatorial basics, for how anyone creates anything, is the reuse of certain components. I'm a writer. What do I do? I use words. Have I invented words? No, well, probably I have by accident. Misspelling them, and you know, th there should be a word for this. I didn't know that uh, monondoc was, not, was, a word, was actually a word. But um, writers reuse, and uh, painters don't invent paints. They go to the paint store, they buy paints. There's always components. So whenever you feel stuck, the lesson in this, this, this elongated history tale that I'm telling you, the lesson is if ever you feel stuck, if ever you feel unmotivated, if ever you're given an assignment, you don't know where to begin. If there's something in the world that's attempted to solve the problem that you're working on, some earlier version of some competing product, something that goes further back, maybe, maybe there's a paper, something on paper that was done that instead of being a, if you're working on a calendar project, you could look at paper calendars, go and look at those pieces and study them. And it will reveal to you ideas for how to recombine those things to make something new. So, to bring this back around to design and the world that most of you work in, I'm going to show you a picture. I want you to try to guess at what this is. This is a device that's meant for people to interact with. That's all that I will say. Anyone want to guess at what this is? Sewing machine engine. That's a good guess. It's not correct, but it's very good. I'll tell, I'll tell you why after people get other chances to guess. I'll give you a clue. Well, he's on the right track because this is a knee, a human knee with a thing on top of it. No one else wants to guess? Pedal? Pedal? Okay. 
No. Uh, let me give you a, a closer hint. This is meant to be a, um, I can't do it without giving it away. Uh, let me think of a clue. Give me a second. Um, think of, um, I'll just tell you. <laughs> Why am I bothering to do this? OK, so uh, this is an early prototype of this. This is the first, one of the first prototypes that Doug Engelbart had for the mouse. Now, we take the mouse just like the Eiffel Tower. We take it for granted. It's this thing that exists in the world for us. Uh, I mean, I'm old enough that some of you might be young enough that you grew up when mice already existed. But uh, we take it for granted. It was a successful design idea. It's been reused as now the standard for how we interact with most computers, except for like laptops and things. But there was a long period of time. They didn't exist. Most of human history didn't exist. The gentleman whose name should be a household name, Doug Engelbart, was trying to figure out a way. I'm going to go back to that earlier picture. We're trying to figure out a way, how do you make it easier for human beings to interact with machines? Human beings and machines. So what did he do? He came up with ideas on his own, but he did the same thing I just described, the same process. All ideas are made from other ideas. So how else do humans interact with machines? And this is in the 1960s, 1965, 67, somewhere in there. So what was the most dominant way that humans interacted with machines? There weren't that many. Sewing machine was one. Automobiles were another. So he got inspired to try this out by thinking about automobiles. People drive with their hands. They use their feet to do very fine motor control. The gas pedal and the throttle is fine motor control for your foot. So he was thinking, hey, let's reuse that. The foot could be the way that you interact with things. There's also a, whole, there's a paper I once read. Someone went all the way the other way and said that we actually designed cars wrong, that the throttle should be a, uh, a wheel that you turn with your hands, and that the foot pedals, like in an airplane, should control direction. It's an interesting sort of uh, 101 mental models, human interaction assignment to do to try to, could you experiment with that? Would it actually work better? That's a tangent. Anyway, my point here is that you can take any idea, anything that you think is brilliant or amazing or is done by a genius, tear it apart into pieces, and now you go, ah, I see all the different ways. Let me, if I combine them differently, I may be able to come up with something new that is better in some way. We see this in the arts, of course, too. This is the Vitruvian man. Famous, raise your hand if you've seen this drawing before in some shape or form. It's called the Vitruvian Man. It's a drawing by Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci. Does anyone know why it's called the Vitruvian Man? You guys are intimidated by the last one. So it's called Vitruvian Man because there was an architect, a Roman architect, named Vitruvius, who wrote a book about 2,000 years ago, somewhere in there, called The Ten Books on Architecture. And one of the things that drives me crazy, I didn't, I, by the way, I'm not a historian really. I didn't study history in school. I was a developer, a designer. I managed teams of software designers. But in order to be better as a designer and a manager, I wanted to study how other people design and manage things. And little by little, I found myself on the way back through history. We're very proud as an industry to think design principles, design standards, all these pattern languages. We think we invented these things. This is the book that invented design patterns or the book that documented them anyway. Roman architect tried to explain everything that he knew about architecture in a pat kind of a pattern language kind of book. I don't recommend reading this book, because books at that time were a very privileged kind of publishing. There's a lot of weird stuff in there, like his favorite recipe for porridge, like how he didn't like his neighbors. It's kind of like a blogging, early blogging kind of mismatch of styles and genres. I don't recommend reading the book. But uh, most people don't know. Da Vinci knew about this book. He made this artifact. People look at the artifact, think it's just something cool that he made, and then on and on it goes. So now it becomes this meme, this thing that lives on in the world. People don't even know what it is exactly that's being referenced at some point. 
and you see it creep up in all these little places. Now you know. Now every time you see that, you're like, hey, Da Vinci drew that, but Da Vinci drew it based on something Vitruvian did. And I bet Vitruvius, the knowledge he put in that book, he probably got bits of that knowledge from other people too, more senior architects, the people he learned from, and on and on it goes. So if ever you're stuck, if ever you're, you're frustrated, your team isn't going anywhere, you have to go back to say all ideas are made from other ideas. We have to break this problem down to smaller pieces and experiment with recombining them. So combinations and playing with combinations. This book that I wrote that's about understanding ideas better, one of the, the claims that I make, or my frustrations, is so many books on creativity and creative thinking are all about idea generation. And idea generation turns out not to be very hard. It's not that hard to do. If you're able to break an idea down to pieces and recombine them and experiment and play, you'll find new ideas. The harder part is what do you do with those ideas? How do you pitch people on ideas? How do you deal with your own psychology when you're exploring six different ideas? How do I pick which one? Your feelings of dealing with uncertainty, those are the, the problems that are hard. The second fallacy that comes up in so many books and popular thoughts about creative thinking is that creativity is some kind of a talent, that it's something that you possess. Oh, Fred's so creative. Oh, Sally's so creative. Bob, he's, he's not that creative. He's, he's, he's a hard worker. That it's something innate in you. And that's really not true. Anyone suitably motivated will be creative, given enough incentive. So I prefer to think of creativity instead of as a, a, a noun, this thing you possess. It's an activity. When someone comes up to me and says, I want to be more creative, I'm like, great. More creative in what? Do you want to play guitar? Do you want to write music? Do you want to design software? What do you want to create? I just want to be more creative at everything. I'm like, I can't help you then. Because it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not an activity. If you want, actually, if someone said, I want to be more creative at thinking, I'd say you should write, you should make movies, you should produce things, that require, produce things that require you to think hard about expressing something or creating something. But what is, how does someone become a great guitarist or a great musician? They practice at it. They pick up the guitar and they play. Through the act of playing, they get better and more, they can do more things. They can try more ideas out. There's no way around it. I'm a writer, so I get asked, I want to write a book. I'm like, great, what have you written so far? And then, I haven't written anything yet. I'm like, well, I can't help you then. You have to be creating in order to be creative. There's no way around it. <clears throat> people who we often label as creative thinkers are often people who are simply willing to express ideas that come across their mind. They have fewer inhibitions. We all get ideas for things when we're sitting in some boring meeting, there's some conversation going on, we get an idea in our head, but we're thinking, should I say this now? There's some inhibition of our fear of judgment, that we are going to say something will be rejected, or our reputation will suffer. We, we say a really crazy or weird idea. So we, we repress that. We hold that back. And our culture often pushes us that way. When we're young, we're encouraged to do that, to play, to play with Lego or Minecraft, do things where there's no definitive, measurable, obtainable KPI or, or measurable um, amount of goodness in the thing. Just doing the thing itself is what is the goal. But as we get older, we get more comfortable and more motivated by external validation. Did you get an A on the test? Did you get a B? Did you get a 95? Did you graduate with honors? What's your salary? Did you get promoted? These are all things that have external values. And we forget that the whole process of creating stuff and developing ideas is about that kind of initial experimentation. So if you're thinking, I want to be more creative, I want to be a more creative thinker, I think that's great. The only thing you need to do then is Whenever you have that thing come across your mind, I wonder what would happen if we took the navigation from the left side and put it on the right side. Like, has it always been on the left side? Like, who, who came up with that? 
which is a good question to go and try and answer. It's a fun one. But OK, that's a question you have. Now you have to put some energy behind that idea to actually make it into a verb. Let me go and make a prototype of that thing. That's the only way you can explore the idea and now change it from being a noun into being an action, actually doing the thing. One fun way to think about creative thinking, I mentioned a few minutes ago about I really think that anyone can be better at developing an idea simply by finding sources of motivation. And the classic ones are easy. Uh, people are so passionate about an idea or passionate about a customer, you want to solve a problem for them. Or it could be greed and ambition. Uh, Edison and Eiffel and jo Steve Jobs were partially at least motivated by ambition and ego. But there are simpler things that go on in our brains when we are motivated for very daily, trivial things. Think of the last time that you lost your keys or lost your phone. It's probably even a more better metaphor. I bet for a lot of us, you, could say, you lose your keys, you could choose. You have to lose your keys today or your phone. We go, well, I'll lose my keys. <laughs> I can get around better and I can call my friends with my phone. But imagine losing something valuable, losing your phone. Initially, when you don't know where your thing is, because it's not where you put it, you go, oh, it's not here. So you, 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 you do the next easiest available things. But once you exhaust that in the first couple of minutes of exploring, you very quickly, without thinking about it, get very creative in where you're going to look for your lost keys. You're going to look under the couch. You're going to start looking in jackets and items of clothing you haven't worn in years. And you know you haven't worn them, but you're looking in them anyway. That's the human experience of being motivated to be creative. You, you are willing to try and experiment. There's no process you're using. You're not using like mind maps or like brainstorming techniques. There's, there's no like school class you had to take. It's innate in us as problem solvers. If you're sufficiently motivated, you'll start trying weird things. And the more ambitious you are about what idea you're working on, the weirder the ideas you're going to have to try because the, the problem is harder and it demands more experimentation to create a result. Now this phrase, the dance of the possible, it's a friendlier metaphor for me than a lot of the ways that we think about problem solving. No matter how smart you are, how many products you've shipped, how many apps you've built, how many websites you've designed, it's not about experience. Every time you make something new, you have inherent challenges that are unavoidable because you are dealing with the unknown. You are making something that's never been made before, at least not for this client, not on this day, not with this developer, not with this designer. It is something new, manifestly new in the world. So there are challenges that come with that. And some of those challenges are hard, and frustrating, and emotionally taxing. So I like to think of it, instead of thinking of it as a thing you should avoid, I like to think of it as a dance. It's something you're going to have to work with on every project. You're going to find the flow, the rhythm. You're going to be moving left. You're going to move to the right. Sometimes you need more ideas. Sometimes you're going to need less ideas. You're never going to be entirely certain about which way to go. So it's a dance. In a dance, the uncertainty is part of the fun. That's part of the pleasure of it. You wouldn't do a dance, where you, or you wouldn't think of it as a good dance, if you're rigidly standing in the same place, obsessing about counting one, two, three, four, not actually enjoying anything. If you want to make something interesting and better happen, it's going to be a more challenging kind of operation. So I'm going to switch to another kind of a story. I want to talk to you briefly about Magellan. It may not seem all that creative to be an explorer, but I think there's a lot of parallels between people who explore and people who design things. Explorers look at a map and they go, where's the spot of things that have not been done before? 
there's all this stuff that's mapped out, the spot that has not been done before. I want to go there. And I'm going to go there, I'm going to find something useful and bring it back. They deal with the unknown. And if you're designing something for a customer, for a client, you're designing something, you're dealing with the unknown. You're making a version, it could be version 7 of some accounting program, which doesn't seem like it's all that radical or interesting, but it is the unknown. We, we presume that when we change this feature and we design this way, we can make it better, but you're not 100% certain of that. Many, many projects make things worse. Like all the stuff that we use in our lives that frustrate us, most of those are not version 1s. They've been around for a long time, and maybe they were better in their earlier versions. So Magellan, let me tell you about Magellan. So Magellan, of course, is famous for circumnavigating the globe. It's like, great. Seems straightforward and obvious to us. Of course, the Earth is round. And at the time, despite all the stupid stuff about Columbus, most people knew even in the 1500s the Earth was round. They could tell when they sailed the boat, it would go over the curve of the ocean. They'd see that it would disappear. They kind of knew how it all worked. They had basic ideas of mapping. So it seemed to us, to us in the present that it's just someone would eventually do it, so how hard could it have been? And part of what betrays us is when we look at the history of it, we look at the map. Oh, OK. I'm sorry, Strait of Magellan, the actual strait is here. Strait of Magellan, like, of course, we see the map from a bird's eye view. How hard could it have been? You have a boat, you sailed through, fine. You got scurvy and like, you know, crappy food to deal with. But on the whole, not that creative a thing to do. But this is the wrong way to think about the problem. And this is the wrong way to think about history in the same way that the way that most of you, when you came in this morning, thought about the Eiffel Tower was kind of wrong, or at least flawed from the point of view of wanting to be a designer or a maker of things. The point of view you want to have about history as a designer or a maker of things is what it was like in that day before they knew what the outcome would be. What was their daily life like? What, what was the point of view from that moment like when there was uncertainty? Because in all the projects we do, we face uncertainty. So you really want to look at it like this. I mean, this is sort of the, uh, if they had any maps at all of that region, they're on the east coast, they want to get to the west, they don't know what's there. Now, it's, now it looks very different. Now if you're the project manager for the Magellan project or for your web development effort, it's the unknown. You have a spec and a schedule, but we all know how made up those things can often be. Unknown. And in fact, it's even more, hard, more, it's even harder than this. If you're actually in a boat facing into what would be discovered as the Strait of Magellan, this is what it looks like. Now, I'm not a sailor, and I don't know that much really about geography or geology, but if I'm thinking I'm trying to get across a continent, and I look at this inlet, and I see that mountain, I'm not thinking this is the right way. I wouldn't go this way. It seems like how. It just seems like it's, it's a daft thing to even attempt to do. That's the reality of what Magellan's story was like. Or any explorer, any explorer in any kind, intellectual explorer, artistic explorer, pioneer of any kind deals with this. And in a way, that's what you deal with. Again, if you're, a pro you're working on a project and it hasn't been built yet, you're on the second iteration, but you're not sure. We think we, we planned six iterations. Is that enough time? Will we discover all the things we need to in that time? Don't know. Now, one of the tricks, one of the secrets that ties back to design in a way that explorers used was the same thing we, would, we do today, which is exploring alternatives. Whenever they were stuck at some uh, inlet, they're not sure which way to go, they had multiple boats. It said one boat in one direction. You go west. Another boat in another direction east. You go north. We'll explore alternatives. Go for five days. Turn around, come back. Share the data with me as your captain or project leader. And now I'm informed a little bit about all my alternatives. I've divided up the big unknown into at least smaller slices, and that's what you work with. 
Dealing with the unknown demands that same kind of resource allocation. If you're working for someone who's obsessed with efficiency, which many people are in the world, they want the sky and then they tell you they can only afford to pay pennies for it, this seems like waste. You're a designer. You don't know which alternative to, is the right one. You know, it's like telling an explorer, you're an explorer. You don't know which inlet is the right one to go through a continent. It's the same thing. The psychology of the unknown is, is this inherent characteristic of making things. I've yet to find a story of a genius, not even a genius, of a successful inventor creator in any field who, while they are working on the thing, maintain complete certainty of their ability to complete it in the way they wanted to for the entirety of that project. Far more often, especially in the more creative fields, arts, projects get abandoned because they know halfway through, this is not going to work. I'm not going to complete this symphony in the way that I want. I've got to put it aside because it's, it's way too ambitious. The unknowns get, are getting bigger and bigger faster than my ability to create to solve them. But this element of dealing with the psychology of the unknown is a large part of what it takes to lead projects, to lead design efforts. It's your comfort with uncertainty. You're willing to say, you know what? Yes, we don't know now. We're going to try three alternatives, and we'll be able to pick the best one and learn enough. We can try more alternatives, and we continue to iterate and get better. But to pretend that there's some methodology that eliminates this sense of not being sure of what's next is absurd. And I think it's a denial of the reality of what it is to do creative work of any kind, of any kind in any field. Now, I call this the dance of the unknown. I'm going to show you the one chart I have from my entire presentation here. That all projects, they start at the beginning, you have an idea for something, and then you come up with ideas, and very quickly it spreads. The space of ideas that you're working with gets very big. This is known as divergence. That's the fancy language in the psychological literature. Divergent thinking. Also a young adult movie and book series, Divergent. <clears throat> No matter how well or good a job you do at growing your idea space, there's always the possibility there's some idea you didn't think of, it wasn't in your range of thinking, always possible. Can't deny it. That's just the reality of making new things. Eiffel had other ideas for things that maybe he, he thought of later that he didn't have time for, he could not have predicted. Eiffel looks at the Eiffel Tower and sees a lot of things he should have done or could have done. Every musician, and artist, and writer often has a lot of regrets and complaints about the things that they made. Bruce Springsteen hated Born to Run. He didn't want it released. Um, Steven Spielberg, Woody Allen. There's a long history of creative people who look back at their work. And these are the people, the best in their field, and still feel this, this psychology of the unknown. They kind of wish there was some way they could have imagined every possibility and made the right choice. Of course, at some point, you have enough ideas. Now the goal is convergence. You want to shrink the idea space. You have one thing you release into the world. That's one set of ideas. Very different skill set. Some people are much better at divergence. They're much better at the beginning of projects. Other people are much better at convergence. They're much better at the end of projects. If any of you are project leaders in any way, it's good to know the basic psychological profiles of the people you work with. Having people who are better at convergence at the beginning, working on divergent tasks, is incredibly frustrating. It's like a brainstorming meeting where there's one guy in the room or one person in the room who says, you can't do that. Too hard. Take a week. Take two months. Like you can't work that way. But these patterns, growing and shrinking, growing and shrinking, are inherent in all kinds of creative work. I think writing, although I'm, I'm obviously I'm biased because I am a writer, but it's the one creative process everybody knows. If you wrote an essay in high school, you know about writing drafts. You know about it. 
the idea of iteration, the idea of multiple drafts, which is really where the idea of iteration in the software world kind of comes from, is that when you're dealing with enough complexity, you can't possibly get everything right in a single iteration. You should never expect to. There's too many unknowns. So the goal then is to diverge and converge, to do enough divergence, you get some interesting ideas, converge, so you have something you can work with, a prototype, do a user study on it, have someone read the draft, have someone look at the mock-up. So you learn more, you can diverge again and converge again. And every creative field, every creative field has the same kind of process. These period, and they're named different things, they're organized in different ways, diverging and converging. And the reminder here, the lesson here, is that, and Eiffel Tower comes back into play here. We see the Eiffel Tower as a finished thing of beauty, and I showed you the early pictures of it. They had their own phases, at least four or five phases, where even the Eiffel Tower had to go through these iterations back and forth. So my last story for you, my last little lesson or question about, or, or lesson I guess is a better word, for how to think better ideas, is this question, uh, what is good? So what is good? I, I, I want you to think for a moment about these two images here in the context of what is good. So Keanu Reeves. Recently on Facebook, a friend of mine posted that, and this was not a sarcastic post, that he thought Keanu Reeves was one of the great actors of all time. One of the greatest actors of all time. Robert De Niro, Meryl Streep, Keanu Reeves? So at first I thought he was joking or something. And then like one of his friends was, oh yeah, I totally agree. The Matrix trilogy is one of the best trilogies ever. And I'm like, oh my god, oh my god. <laughs> but if you look at the box office numbers, like Keanu Reeves is one of the most successful uh, actors of all time, for sure. Like not even close. Uh, he's been in a lot, like think of like uh, Speed, and he's been in a lot of movies that were actually good movies. But were they good because he's such a stellar actor? I don't know. The Big Mac. Big Mac is probably the most successful designed object in terms of consumption, units of consumption, one of the, in the world, the history of the world. This one, it's incredibly successful. It's also like 40 years old. It's been around a long time. It's still one of the most well-known and beloved by many people objects in the world. But what is good? What does good mean? Is Calorie a good actor? Is the Big Mac a good product? Is it a good design? It depends. It depends. And this is where any, any discussion of creativity must go to. Because if you're creating something for the world, for a customer, for a client, or for yourself, you can come up with as many ideas as you want. Idea generation is not that hard, really. And you can develop those into concepts. But you've got to eventually decide, how am I going to pick between these things? And the way you pick between those things is answering the question, what is good? What, what's the goal? How do I compare this thing to that thing? Now, a lot of what goes on in software development, I think, is a very a super rational attempt to answer what is inherently a subjective question of what is good. Vision documents and mission statements and prototypes and user, user scenarios. There are all these attempts where someone has a notion of what is good and it's mapped into a document or a form that's then used for discussion by a team. But I've seen in many cases, this isn't always true, but I've seen in many cases, all these processes can be entirely subverted 
simply because the VP or the director or the client doesn't like it. They just don't think it's good. You can do all this work, all that you want, in an attempt to convince people of your idea of what is good, but inherently, at the end of the day, it's, it's, there's a subjective element to it. I'm not saying these things are a waste of time. I'm not. They are useful. But at the end of the day, you are going to be, the decisions are going to be made based on someone's inherent subjective notion of what goodness is. Is this fast enough? Does it load fast enough? You, you can, does it feel like it loads fast enough? You can start to measure, which a lot of project teams do, but how, then how it feels versus the actual metrics for how fast it loads. <clears throat> Another way to think about what is good is asking these questions. Um, is this an important problem to solve? For the Big Mac, this, well, whose well, who's problem is it? Is it a much better user-centered way to ask that question? Uh, whose problem is it? If the problem is how do we make a food product that's easy to engineer, shelf-stable for three months, it looks good, easy to photograph, holds up well, doesn't get soggy after 20 minutes, um, and is cheap to manufacture, then the Big Mac might be your answer. If what is good is, doesn't give people heart disease, doesn't give them indigestion, actually promotes good health and longevity, different answer. When it comes to creativity, you will have these subjective elements. Some people will say, Bruce Springsteen's a terrible, terrible singer. Other people will say, he's a fantastic singer. What is good? Keanu Reeves, great actor, terrible actor. What is good? We'll come back around to what is good. And to close and tie all this back together, so the Monagnac building up the street it was a fantastic building when it was built in 1891. It was progressive in all these ways. But after the Eiffel Tower was built, the design styles used in the, the Modnock building, these brick buildings, went by the wayside. The, this building doesn't even make it. Chicago has so many amazing buildings. It's true. It's an unfair comparison. But it doesn't make it into the top 10 buildings to look at, even though for its time, it was incredibly good and incredibly progressive. But what is good? It's actually a fantastic example of design thinking for floors and office buildings, electricity. They had uh, this great lattice work on the stairwells. It's actually a beautiful building. And you can live and work in it. The Eiffel Tower, on the other hand, is just this empty steel case. You can't live in that at all. Is that good? Is the Eiffel Tower a good building? Is the Modignat building a good building? I mean, to compare it to other things, a tiny house in the wilderness, at least you can live in. The Eiffel Tower, you can't even live in it at all. There's no, there's no way to, there's, not, there's nothing, it's this incredibly, they use the word monstrosity, but it's this artifice of um, a kind of, um, I don't know, maybe kind of hubris. Spend all that money on just this empty, empty thing. I happen to think it's a beautiful building, but you can't deny this fundamental question behind all these things, what is good? And I think one of the things that you'll get out of today, this is my little razzle-dazzle for the book, uh, you get out of today is asking the question, what is good? Every speaker you're going to hear today is going to tell you about a process, an idea, a project, and have their own point of view about what good is. And my suggestion to you is use that to your advantage today. How does what the speaker is saying, what is good, compare to your notion? And what can you learn from those differences? So with that, I will say thank you. And uh, I have a minute or two for questions, perhaps. Is that true? So thank you for listening. I'll take a round of applause, perhaps. Thank you. Appreciate that. And I need the throw box to, anyone have a question? You get, I have a bunch of books here that are signed. If you ask a question, you get a book. Is the simple way this works. Motivated reasoning, motivated audience participation. I, I don't know if you maybe talk about this in the book, but I think one of the challenges a lot of us have as designers, sorry, I was speaking into the right facet of this thing for a second. Uh, one of the questions a lot of the time you have is, uh, one of the things you're trying to do as a designer is get people on the team like engineers who don't think 
that they're creative or they don't think of themselves that way. I think you're trying to get them uh, active and like say, no, you are creative. And that's like where, like where a lot of these brainstorming exercises come from, you know? So um, I'm just wondering if you can talk about like any things you've done in the past. I mean, again, this maybe draws directly from the book. No, 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 but, but the, forget the book. I'm here in front of you. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, and I'm somebody, so I, my, my undergraduate degree was in engineering and then I went sure. back to school for design. So like, I always thought it was weird as an engineer that like. Got it. Yeah. First um, thing, steal their phone. Hide their phone. Not creative? See all the places they look, okay? <laughs> uh, second thing is engineering is actually very creative. So I have an engineer, well, I studied engineering for a while in school, lots of programming classes. It's just, it's entirely unstructured and naive in the way that it's taught. You're given programming assignments, you have to invent things in a way that's just not structured. It's, it's, it's very black box. And so I think that's a way to get at it too. If, if the engineer you're working with has an experience making projects, they've probably been very creative. It's just, they don't think of it that way. So I would ask them to pick a particularly challenging algorithm they had to write or a problem they had to solve and let them and ask them to explain to you what their thought process was for how they came up with it. And invariably, they're going to say, well, I tried this, and it didn't work, but I learned this, and I tried that. And you could probably take exactly what they say and go to the whiteboard and map it to whatever creative process you're using for design work. It'll be, it'll map, it also it'll look like that. It'll look like exploring, contracting, exploring, contracting. And with that comparison, that may be the connection, the tabula rasa, to say, oh, it, these are similar. And then that's what I would do, is get them to think that they're actually, the process of engineering is a creative process, because it is. Thanks. Anyone else? Yes. Yes. Sooner. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, I'll give you the short answer, and then the long answer I'll have to think about. The short answer is um, bourbon. Uh, or, or, or whatever. There's so much of any engineering. I used to manage engineers, and I was a designer for a while working with engineers. So much of it comes, there's no abstract technique. It's about your rapport with them. And if they trust you and respect you, they are, will be far more willing to try any of your suggestions regardless, compared to if they don't respect you or don't think that you're helpful to the project. And how you help with the project, it almost doesn't matter how you are as long as they see you as a useful person. And the worst thing you can do is have the designer flag and say, I'm a designer, I'm going to hit you over the head, here's this process that we like to believe that works, it almost never does. It's about do they respect you, are you useful, are you helpful in conversations in small ways? That would be my strongest recommendation. But if I think of, I, I, think, I probably think of a longer way to answer, but I should get off the stage because lots of other speakers today. So thank you all for listening. I'll see you around today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Chicago Camp's 2017 Prototypes, Process, and Play Design Leadership Conference podcast, sponsored by Balsamic. With Balsamic mockups, anyone can design great interfaces. And in partnership with Simplecast, publish your podcasts the easy way at simplecast.fm. Learn more about Chicago Camp's events on our website at chicagocamps.org.